You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to the film podcast, a podcast channel dedicated to filmmakers just like you. In this episode, we're going to rewind and look at two previous podcasts with two different filmmakers. It's going to give you the opportunity to listen to selected segments from them together in one episode. The first filmmaker we'll hear from is Gary Rydstrom, who, believe it or not, is a seven-time Academy Award winner and who is not only a director, but also a master of sound design. He's worked with the likes of Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, George Lucas and Robert Redford. In fact, he's been with George Lucas at the Lucas Sky Ranch since the 1980s and has worked on Star Wars and a bunch of other films. On this film podcast, Rewind, I start out by asking him how he was offered the Lucasfilm Strange Magic to direct. William, the first directing offer I got to do was through Pixar. I had a long-standing relationship with Pixar doing sound for their very first films, and so I knew that company well and was always part of their development of films, and they were nice enough to offer me a chance to direct. So the first directing I did was a short for uh, Pixar called Lifted. Strange Magic, which was originally called Primrose in-house, and uh, I'd heard about it for years, and it was a project that George Lucas had started and worked on, a sort of a fairy tale musical. And it's gone through different iterations and different filmmakers and that kind of stuff. And the timing of it, which is both sad and happy for me, is that I, I was developing a feature film at Pixar that got shut down. So when that got shut down, I went back to Lucasfilm to go back to my sound career. And then, you know, within a not too long a time, I get this, you know, hey, you worked at Pixar. Why don't you, why don't you take over this animated film we've been having uh, uh, trouble with or can't quite finish? And so... I thought I was going from my Pixar animation directing career back to my sound career. And then, you know, it turns out Lucasfilm had this half-finished animated film that they asked me to take over. And it was great. I mean, it was, to be honest, it was a film that if I were to propose something from scratch, I probably wouldn't think of fairies and I probably wouldn't have done a musical. But I always remember hearing stories about how Francis Coppola, you know, Godfather was kind of a cheesy book and, you know, he... He did it and then made one of the great films of all time. So I thought, oh, I don't think I made one of the great films of all time. But it was great to both direct a feature and to direct a feature that that was something I inherited. So the musical aspect and the singing of songs, we had Alan Cumming and Evan Rachel Wood and, and Maya Rudolph and great actors and singers. It was so much fun that I joked at the end of it that I, if I ever direct another movie, it has to be a musical. I'm not sure about the fairy part, but the musical part was really fun. And um, I never would have had that experience had they not uh, kind of looked around Lucasfilm and said, oh, there's somebody with some animation experience. Why don't you take this over? So I, I'm grateful for the experience. I'll tell you that. And you have worked with a lot of established filmmakers, as you said, Steven Spielberg, which you were the sound designer on for The Post, which is a great film, actually, to drill down on all the layers of sound that you created in that film. I heard you say that with a filmmaker like Spielberg, you are less likely to go off on a tangent and experiment because he is so clear with his messaging. Which way, though, do you prefer to work? Is it more in a precise way or in a let's discover mode and an exploration mode of unearthing different options? Well, I like to, even on the Spielberg films, I like to try things. And the post is full of, you know, just of the natural things about setting up the world of uh, New York and Washington, D.C. and how they sound different in the, the era of the early 60s and printing presses and, and uh, news offices, that kind of stuff. With Spielberg, I love the way he works, that we work together because he doesn't 
dictate up front exactly what he wants. So in, in a way, he's letting the sound people experiment, but it's the movie that's telling us what it wants. His movie making to me is so clear that you can tell what he's going for. Isn't it? Sadly, this isn't always the case, but moment to moment in the scene, in the movie, you can see what he's going for. And so my job is to to make that work, you know, as best as, as possible. And he's the kind of director that doesn't uh, want to see all the details as we go for months and months. He pretty much waits until we get to the final mix and he hears it all together. And if he's the greatest combination of enthusiastic when it works, even if it's not something he's ever heard before, and honest when it doesn't. So what he does for me is he's a backstop. So I feel like I can try some somewhat crazier things, and I certainly have. And then he's a great backstop. Like, no, that that's not that doesn't work or this does. So I love that way of working. There is another way of working that is more, it's kind of a director school of, I, I need to be involved in uh, approving every every sound item that goes into the mix. And then once it's all together, it'll be great because I approved every individual thing. And, and as I said before, sound is such a, it's so much about context. So it's about how sounds work together and how they work in the course of the whole movie. I like Spielberg's approach because he, he really watches it in context. He's not going to give me notes out of context. I want to come back to structure. Can you tell our audience, Gary, why and how good sound design is used for creating structure? Oh, that's a really good question. I I think people think of sound design, including a lot of filmmakers, as you just make a bunch of interesting sounds. Uh, So you think of each sound by itself. But sound design is actually how sounds relate to each other, both at the same time, but then over time in the movie. So and it's not just creating interesting sounds, but it's creating the the sound of the movie. And I remember uh, when we did Terminator 2 with James Cameron, and he would, um, you know, sometimes out of frustration because he didn't like uh, the way the sound was going, he would grab a piece of paper and he would draw like a graph. And uh, the graph had like a, a peak and a plateau and a dip and a, and, a, and, a, and a rise, a slow rise, a fast fall, that kind of thing. And then he was trying to have us shape the sound. So part of how we add structure to a scene or to a movie is to have an ebb and flow. You know, I, I think of it as a, a contrast of uh, just like just like a good musician, composer, orchestrator sort of builds. I think a Beethoven, you can learn more from listening to a Beethoven symphony about sound design for movies than pretty much anything else. It's so beautifully um, modulated and shaped and you have, you know, builds and, and, and peaks and, and low, long buildups. And that's, that's part of the structure of a film is how, you know, how, how the audience is taken through the emotions. And too much of the time these days, especially in action films, essentially uh, the filmmaker will crank it up to 11 and play it that way for two and a half hours. And it, it doesn't work. So in addition to storytelling, I mean, we're, we're definitely trying to set up mood, scene, setting, you know, make the story, make your eye go where it should on the screen, guide the eye to what's important, all those things that are also structural. But I think one of the things that sound does is it gives you this experience, much like a symphony does, over a long period of time that has a variety of, of feelings and emotions to it. It has a shape. Which is, that's what I learned from James Cameron. And I, to this day, I think about sound from movies in a visual way, in a, uh, in a graphic way. And it... it <laughs> It was like a, an epiphany when he just drew a scene on a piece of paper and I went, oh, I get it. And so, you know, you, you can mean a lot of things by structure. It's a really good question. But that one of the main things a structure involves sound with is uh, shape. And one of the key tricks of sound is the ability to see with our ears. 
it happens all the time, yet people are not aware of it happening. It's a manipulation. It's part of the storytelling. And why is this such a powerful way to fuse into a story? Well, there's a, and, and this happens to me all the time where I remember, I remember working on Ready Player One, a Spielberg film from a couple of years ago, and it was so visually dense that sometimes I couldn't even see what was going on. There's a great car race scene in that movie, which I love, but it's incredibly dense in terms of story and, and visuals. There's a psychological thing happens if you place a sound on, a, on an action, visual action, the audience will put the two together if they're meant to go together and then see the thing you want them to see. And Spielberg was always good at saying, I want the sound to guide the eye. And you can get away with visually dense uh, scenes, you want to guide the eye visually as well, but sound can be such a component for guiding the eye uh, in a scene as it goes. And then it's just that magic of, you know, I, when I was in film school, we were taught about guiding the eye, you know, cut to cut, where the audience is looking and sort of, it's like a magician trying to, you know, have you look over here while they do the card trick over there. Uh, a lot of that happens visually in film, but sometimes filmmakers and even sound people ignore the fact that sound, we have to guide the ear just like we guide the eye. The movies these days, which are becoming so incredibly rich, visually sometimes too rich, but they become so rich that, you know, we're trying to make sure that the audience is looking where you want them to look. And the mood of a film like The Post, which is period, it's a busy newsroom, a lot of movement in the film. How many layers were you dealing with on a film like The Post? Well, these days, I mean, I think of layers in terms of premixes. So these days, effects premixes will do, you know, a dozen, you know, and they're not always going at the same time. In the post, you know, if you think about it from the sound editing point of view, every newspaper office scene will have a premix of typing, a premix of actually of distant typing, a premix of close typing, a premix of close phones, a premix of distant phones, a premix of wallas of the, the people there, um, premix of the teletypes in the back room, uh, doors, hard effects, that kind of stuff. So it's all broken into these uh, miniature or, or focused elements that then blend into something. I remember on that film, Spielberg always wanted them busier than I think I initially made them. If you listen to All the President's Men, one of the great things about that movie still is the newsroom. And it related to the Post. It was the Washington Post and All the President's Men, although our newsroom was the previous building, which is an interesting thing. Somewhat older equipment, and All the President's Men was in a building that the Washington Post had moved into in the Watergate era. But listen to how loud the ambiences are. Even, you know, it, a lot of the sound mixers will say dialogue is number one. You have to make sure you hear every word, and it's true. Uh, and you've know, got All the President's Men. You want to hear Newman and Redford. And I heard that that's what the newsrooms were really like. They were so loud. So that was one of the things that Spielberg kept pushing for in the post was more of that. Uh, just denser typewriters and phones and, and chair squeaks and off-screen doors and, uh, you know, people yelling and ripping paper out and all the kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, I did Private Ryan for him, which is same thing. We build up a war movie by, you know, cutting every bullet by and bullet hit and, and gun kind of bit by bit until you get this cacophony. And the newsroom in the post is kind of the, uh, you know, it has the equivalent. You know, you build up these thousands of details into something that feels all together you know, I, I've said many times in my career these days that, that the modern world is not as exciting sounding for a sound designer as, as the past. So newsrooms, if you were doing a news story, newsroom story now, the newsrooms with computers and stuff, boring. 
uh, you mm-hmm. know, electronic phone rings, that kind of stuff. But the, the, the late 50s, early 60s, my God, with, you know, actual bells on the phones and, and um, you know, women in high heels, which is an important part of that, that movie. I wanted the women characters to really stand out with their high heels. And endless teletypes and typewriters. What a great, probably an annoying thing to live through. But from a sound person's point of view, I love movies that take place in eras that sounded so cool. It definitely had that effect. That sound was really almost a little bit of like manic in a way, because that's kind of what that story was all about. It was a a manic situation and you were bringing all those intense flavors and tones into that whole mix, which, which really worked. And you mentioned Saving Private Ryan. I mean, that beach scene and what you did there, again, it's a similar type of thing. It's not lost on somebody like me, but it's not lost on the audience. They they just can't put their finger on why they enjoyed that film the way that they did. Going back to you, you used a great word manic for the for the newsroom. That's that's the way I think too. It's not just being realistic about typewriters, but even in in, in something that you don't think has an emotional component for sound, it always does. It always does. And so you know the choice of of the type of typewriters. There there are clackier and more kind of tense sound sounding old typewriters, and there are smoother sounding you know sort of pre selectric kind of typewriters. Whether you hear that, and choices about what you cut in and how much is exactly what you said. If you want the scene to sound manic, you you edit these supposedly mundane things so they sound manic. If you want them to seem kind of smooth and orderly, you cut them to be smooth and orderly. There are moments in that movie where they kind of quiet down because something's happening in the newsroom they want to pay attention to. So then you have this kind of cacophony quieting down, and that's equally important. You know, the the battle scene in Private Ryan, you always have to think of an like an adverb or an adjective for these scenes for the sound. And for me, Private Ryan was, in addition to being very point of view, it was, even though we controlled every element of the sound, it was chaos. And the, the, what was scariest to me about the opening of Private Ryan, if I'm thinking about it as a, a soldier experiencing storming Normandy Beach, is that the randomness of death, just the randomness, it's, it's random. And it, um, so then you're building a track, so it's articulate, and you hear guns and bullets and all that kind of stuff, but there's kind of a, kind of a Russian roulette quality to it. There's a, there's a, you don't know what's, what's going to happen next. When you said Matic, it made me think about that. Every scene, you should come up with a word like that that's descriptive of the emotion you want the audience to get from the scene. And even though our eyes are drawn to the things that we are hearing and you can manipulate that, to pull that off has to be done right. What are some of the mistakes when this process goes wrong and doesn't work? Can you give uh, particularly our indie filmmakers a couple of examples when it misses the mark? When they miss the mark, it's usually because people are trying to do the literal. I don't mean to uh, take it out on poor Robert Redford, but I remember spotting uh, the movie River Runs Through It with Robert Redford, and he had very little time. We sat at a cam and we watched the movie, and he was his job was to you know talk about what he wanted for the sound, and he would point out all the, you know that he said, well, there's that there's an old car going by, and there's a door, and yeah, I probably got a little cocky, and I said, well, you know. I, don't, I can see all those things. I want to know what you want to say that isn't on screen or that you want to say in the scene that I can help you with that isn't literal. So I'm sorry, it was Quiz Show because Quiz Show, which is about the Quiz Show scandals, Charles Van Dorn. So then he got a twinkle in his eye, as he often does. And he says, oh, I want you then for the scene where Charles Van Dorn is deciding whether or not to cheat on the Quiz Show. I would like you to come up with a morality tone. Like you to come up, if you want to do something non-literal, come up with a sound for getting inside Charles Van Dorn's head and, and 
experiencing the the angst of a moral decision. So, and you know what? I actually I loved that. That's cool. That's a non literal literal way of using the soundtrack. We tried some things, and there's stuff in Quisha I think that works as sort of getting inside Charles Van Dorn's head. But the mistake people make is to just do. You see it, you cut it. And there's two levels that are wrong with that. One is you don't cut everything you see because, as I said earlier, you want to guide the ear, you want to guide the eye. So if if one thing's more important than the other, you cut that and you diminish or don't worry about the stuff that's that's secondary or tertiary. But then you have the whole off-screen world. Private Ryan made use of things you don't see at all, but is telling you what's going on off-screen. You got the Alan Splett approach with David Lynch movies, which is telling you what's going on off screen, which makes no literal sense at all, except for as a psychological thing. The mistake people often make with sound is not to make use of the full potential of sound to get inside the heads of characters, which is what the beginning of Private Ryan does. We talk about, we don't know Tom Hanks yet, but when he loses his hearing in a a shell shock moment and his hearing disappears and he looks around and can't hear anything properly, we are getting inside his head. You can get inside the character, you can make the audience feel something that isn't necessarily on screen, but is important for the telling of the story. And I find that sound is at its best when it's telling the same story, the visuals are telling it, but from a different angle. And if those two angles come together, I mean, Hitchcock movies are great for this. Kubrick movies are great for this. Use of music, use of sound effects and rear window or clockwork orange, sometimes so disconnected from the soundtrack to the visuals, but it's telling it's make it's the same movie. So uh, the biggest mistake I think people make with sound is to be kind of mundane and literal when there's potential for uh, expanding into emotions and psychology. And of course, as a sound designer, you work closely with a director, but another important creative is the composer. And you worked with a lot of established ones. So let's say that you're on a new project and working with a composer for the very first time. What are some of the steps that you work through for creating a, a fluid working relationship with a composer? Well, ideally, and it doesn't happen as often as it should, but ideally with composers, it's nice to share things. One of the things that happens is tone. I mean, what's, you know, what's the tone? Both the composer and the sound designer are going to pull from the tone of the movie. The other important step that uh, is often done badly and uh, in movies, even high budget movies, is spotting of music. And as I said before, contrast is so important. So where music comes and goes is almost as important as the music. And I, I try to take part in that uh, when I can about, you know, not, not just out of ego, like let me take this part of sound effects only. I think it, you know, there are moments where it just feels right for music to come and go. The best collaborations I've had, John Bryan, who did Punch Dunk Love, and I went actually to the set and visited. He would sit on the set with a with a keyboard in his lap, and he was actually starting to compose music while watching them shoot the movie, which is amazing. I could send him sound effects we were recording of things from the set or taken from the production or things we were doing. Send it to him. I remember there was a there was a harmonium that shows up at the beginning of the movie that Barry Egan gets, and he kind of rips the rips tape to kind of see that that it's a harmonium or kind of fix up the harmonium with this packing tape. So those rips. I would give to John Bryan, then he would put them in the music. So that score had a lot of sound effects and the sound effects in that movie, we were able to mimic some of the themes he had written early on for the music. So there was a real collaboration, like one thing knew what the other was doing. 
the other great collaboration I had was on Jurassic Park, amazingly. And John Williams composed the movie while at Skywalker Ranch for reasons he's never done it since, but it was beautiful to have him there. He was in a room near mine and with the piano and he would write the score. So he could come and listen to what I was doing with, you know, velociraptors or T-Rexes or something. And he could see the, if I was ahead of him, he could see what frequencies I was using. What, you know, what's the, you know, is the raptor in the, the, the cello and, uh, and, and uh, flute range or is the, T-Rex. And the, so he would, he, he orchestrated and wrote, I think, at least partially with in mind what the dinosaurs would sound like. For random reasons, I was just reading about King Kong. Murray Spivak was the sound designer, not called it then, the sound guy on King Kong and then Max Steiner, the composer. They talked about at the time, this is 1931, how much they worked together. So when you wanted to hear the King Kong roar for the first time was important, Max Steiner would sort of build up to it with the music and then get out of the way. And if the music was really going to carry something, then then Murray Spivak would simplify the ambiences of the track to get out of the way. And they they worked hand in glove, which is astounding. For 1931, sound had really only been going full force for three years. So that kind of collaboration should happen more. But if you think about it, the composers and the sound designer, are, are you got the same frame we got the same canvas so you have to work together to some degree because you're going to clash unless you spot it well and think about orchestration and pitch and frequency well uh, then a lot of your time in the final mix is going to be trying to untangle the clash between music and sound effects actually you brought up a really good point because the composer often is like handing off the baton to the sound designer. So in other words, what you just said, build up, build up the the music, and then the baton gets passed off to the sound designer to then just ramp it up further. Uh, You said one of my favorite metaphors for sound mixing, which is a baton handoff. I think think of mixes as relay races all the time. You can't hear too many things at once. You just can't. Music, sound effects, style, you just... So I think of it as a, you know, run as fast as you can, take your moment. It could even be a three-second moment or it could be a 20-minute moment. But if it's your moment, oh, my God, you know, the beginning of Private Ryan is a 20-minute sound effects moment. So, we, we, you know, no music at all. This is great. Designed by Spielberg and John Williams to be that way. So wonderful. You get to the end, you're in, you're out of breath, and you, you hand the baton to John Williams. He takes it and lets the audience feel an emotion based on the previous 20 minutes. That baton handoff is a wonderful, I should put a photo up in my room of a baton handoff from a relay race. Because I, I, mixing and, uh, and relay races are very similar. And the second of our filmmakers in this film podcast, Rewind, is a writer-director producer, Lisa Bryant, who as a filmmaker brought us the Jeffrey Epstein Netflix series, Filthy Rich. Not an easy story to tell with other filmmakers also trying to tell the Epstein abuse story. And I started out by asking Lisa what the goal was from the beginning. Our goal was to give these victims a voice and tell their story. You know, we didn't want to start with the big news. Oh, he's arrested. He's dead. You know, anybody could have done that. It's how we got there that was so important. That was our message. We never veered from that. So many people failed in so many ways. We wanted to expose that and expose the truth. There's a lot of truth that hasn't been told still. The goal was also to make people angrier and angrier. And and I think that just happens as you're watching. You just like, it's one, I can't believe it after another. He was so good at manipulation and lying and, and coercion and all these things and paying people off and his money and his blackmail. And there were so many enablers and so many people afraid of him who could have said something but didn't. 
was there ever a time that you started to doubt the whole process of what you were doing and wonder how you would get through it all? Well, in the very, very beginning when we did start, we had many, many no's, uh, not just from survivors and people that we did reach out to. We had you know, people who were in fear that something would happen to them or their families. I'm talking even people who were friends of his, people who are in his little black book. It was very complicated and we were shot down by a number of people. Some of them did come around. Are they afraid of him? And then, you know, you would revisit that later, you know, uh, later on as some people left the door open or even if they didn't leave the door open after he died, we, we, we kind of circled back. It was very interesting in, in that respect. How concerned were people around you? Uh, you know, it's interesting. My husband, I did take a couple of trips to St. Thomas, which is a stone's throw from Epstein's private island. There's a, a tracker on your phone and he couldn't track me one night and he was very worried. It did get it at some points. I wouldn't say I was, I was uh, scared of him. He was, he definitely was aware. I actually knocked on his door several locations and, and I met his houseman Renato several times and I would leave my car to identify myself and we were tracking his flight. So we knew he was there. How did this all come into your mind of wanting to make this film? Talk me through how the beginnings of it happened. James Patterson, the world famous, one of the best selling authors, had written a book several years ago, back in 2016, I believe it came out. He exposed Epstein for who he was and somebody who has millions of, of readers and he felt it was so important. He brought it around to different production companies, Radical Media and Joe Berlinger understood how important this was. People, people are not listening to this. How can this be going on? There's proof of it here. How could he have gotten a slap on the wrist? He exposed what happened in back in 2008 um, when Epstein, you know, had such a short, you know, jail term for, you know, there's a 53 page indictment against him and he, he gets off with like two prostitution charges. It, it was, you know, outrageous. And so it was something, you know, as a female that was, I felt really, really needed to be told a story of, you know, white privilege and power. You know, they asked me to come on board. I was going to be the showrunner, uh, but it cried out for having a female director because of the sensitive material would, would have probably more empathy and be able to um, connect a little bit better possibly than having a man. It just made sense. I was going to be in that role anyway to, to direct. It was a great honor to, you know, to be entrusted with, you know, this type of a project. You know, we wanted to tell the story that should have been told from these survivors. It's their story to tell. It was their narrative and we needed to get it out there. So Netflix saw the importance of it. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to, to start it actually before it became, he was a household name. Um, so we had already laid a lot of groundwork. We began the project in, I believe it was October of 2018. And, you know, nobody even knew his name really around the world until his arrest, you know, in 2019 in July. So we, we were like almost nine months into the project when everything changed you know we had to rethink everything he's arrested all of a sudden we had been covering the story we had been interviewing people it was very difficult from the get-go because he was alive he was very powerful he was very wealthy he was very well aware we were doing this story um, the Miami Herald story had just come out or hadn't come out yet it came out shortly after um, we began production so 
it, it was difficult. People were afraid of him. He, you know, threatened people. His attorneys had done such a good job. He had done such a good job over the last, you know, 10 years of shutting people down. Threats, you know, NDAs, all kinds of things like that. So it was very difficult from the get-go. And then all of a sudden overnight, you know, our story changed. He became like this household name that people were appalled by, yet, you know, fascinated, needed to learn more. Hundreds of, of news media from all over the world congregated in New York, where I live and is doing this project. All of a sudden, you know, it's this overnight story that people couldn't get enough of, couldn't believe, you know, were disgusted by. And we had already gotten into our second episode of this four-part film. And we really had to kind of shut down over that summer to rethink how we were going to do it. We had to kind of put our documentarian hat, you know, a little bit aside to cover some of the news, which is a difficult thing to do, I think, because, you know, usually things are very well thought out, well planned. And our script kind of had to go off script there. You know, everything changed dramatically, uh, you know, in July of 2019. It looks like a project beset with time delays. Some of the victims, the survivors, as you mentioned, were being hesitant to begin with. And I guess that you had to build trust and a workable relationship with those women involved. But just as important, you also had to build the relationship with their lawyers and probably their wider support people. So as a filmmaker in that position, how did you manage all of the fears, all of the anxiety from the very people that you most wanted to open up and tell their story to camera? Because that's a bit of a balancing act. You know, not everybody can do that. It is. And I think it's a combination of, of being, you know, assertive not too assertive, you know, knowing who you're dealing with. And when you're dealing with an attorney, you need to know your stuff. Sat down with Brad Edwards on day three of joining this project. There was going to be a trial in the beginning. Brad Edwards and, and Jeffrey Epstein had this long war, if you would. And there was going to be a trial where, where some victims were going to speak for the first time. And we race out to cover this. It ends up that they settled. But that was my first meeting with Brad Edwards. And I was able to sit down with him, talk to him, meet him and explain that we're on the right side here and we're out to put out to the world how bad this, this guy is and we're going to dive in and investigate how this happened. How did we get to this point? The same thing that, that he's been trying to understand for 10 years. Tell us how, why and how this happened. You know, how did the secret plea deal happen? So meeting with him and some of his other attorneys like Sigrid McCauley, Jack Scarola, Spencer Coven, these people who are critical to have in your program and who are the ones that have been deeply involved in this for, you know, more than a decade. Michael Ryder in Palm Beach, he was a tough nut to crack. I met with him four or five times before he agreed. He was very nervous and very worried about how he was going to be portrayed. You know, you just have to work extra hard and with kid gloves and, and, and be a human being. I think that's what I do best. It's something, this is such a sensitive subject and they're talking about very, very, very personal, you know, and very horrific details of things that have happened to them in their life you know it's interesting and that's one of the things that i think is so fascinating that um the women that he preyed upon many of them most of them in need of something you know whether it be they came from a bad background and they needed love or they needed money or they needed support or they wanted to go to a school they couldn't afford or they wanted to go overseas they all they all needed something but they didn't have you know great support and um, i think they found that support in our team and I cared. I cared enough to listen. You know, we cared enough to put their story out there. 
When a filmmaker goes about their craft of making a film, we store our stories on hard drives. Normally, a filmmaker doesn't have to worry about someone hacking into their files and maybe deleting and corrupting files. But this was a, a real concern for you at the time. There were, and even now, I guess, people trying to cover things up. Tell us how much over-the-shoulder looking you were doing as a filmmaker. A lot. Before we started Radical Media and Netflix, we took great precautions because we knew he would learn about it and he was alive again and, and rich and powerful. We took great precautions before we even started filming. We worked out of a locked room that had a camera in it. We had a safe in it. We would put all of our media in in the safe at night. Um, all of our edit suites were on a, a, a secret system uh, that nobody else in the, in, in the building had access to. None of the other editors. Uh, we would close the even in the, it's like all windows are in these edit rooms and we would, we had big covers uh, to, so that people couldn't look in and see what we were doing. It was, it, we were known as the Florida project for more than a year, big secret at a big company with, you know, a couple hundred employees there. So we, we really tried to keep things secret and we used encrypted communication that we weren't texting, uh, you know, it was all a lot of phone work and made it, you know, sometimes a little bit clunkier and a little bit harder, but you know, it was so important that we did not want, him to try to shut us down, to hack into our computers, to hack into our media, hack into, you know, the system. So we took great precautions. You know, very glad we did. I remember a few months ago after watching your series, thinking about Ghislaine Maxwell still at large at that time, it did cross my mind then that as a filmmaker, you would want to follow up if she was ever arrested and presumably carry on with the film. Because in many ways, the film hasn't yet ended. It feels like it's hit the pause button. Yeah, so then Maxwell was arrested, which is another part of a fluid moving story with many more parts to potentially be flushed out. So it's fascinating from a filmmaking perspective and a journalistic one of wanting to complete the story. Is that how you feel? Certainly. It's not to say that we're not going to. It's certainly, it is very fluid. Um, there's so much daily. There's new new information coming out. So, but what, you know, we have to think what's really important in our worldwide audience to know. Is it is it every single day something new happens and this person said this, or this person said that. Now, Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested is a huge development. There's no doubt. And we are following that. There's talks that, that we might add to the series, but it's not you know, a definite, let's see if she goes to trial, but we, we don't every single day cover every development that's coming out. You know, there's a lot of these papers being released now from the Virginia Giuffre lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell that are fascinating. Well, we, we had a lot of this information before. So it's like, what does everyone really need to know? Um, and how much now Ghislaine is fascinating in herself and she's a whole episode. So, so there's the potential of just doing something on her because all these other things are so fluid, but her story is, you know, equally horrific, but it, it's fascinating. Why would a woman take part in these, you know, activities and, you know, uh, that we've been told by five of our nine survivors that we talked to were either abused or recruited by her and or both. When you have the same type of stories from women from different age groups who didn't know each other, there's some truth there. So she can say she's not guilty uh, until the cows come home, but there's definitely, you know, a lot of truth there and, and hopefully it will come out in court one day one day soon.
I can't think in modern terms of a film situation quite like this story, whereby we now have uh, streaming services like Netflix that can create the opportunity for a filmmaker like yourself to continue the film. And why wouldn't Netflix want to continue anyway? Because I would imagine as a result of the virus lockdowns around the world, more than likely gave Netflix incredibly large viewing numbers for your series. So it is a different time that we live in, in terms of continuing this story. It's very true. It is true. Yes, we had great numbers. And I do think the story is fascinating. And, and I do think, though, that, you know, people were watching a lot of and still are watching a lot of, of shows and the streaming services are, are very, very popular. And so that definitely did help. But yeah, I do think that people are thirsty for more and hungry for more. So without saying too much, they may get it. We shall see, but it's a, it's a difficult time to film. It is tougher. Things are coming back. I don't know how things are there in New Zealand. People are back shooting again now here in New York, I think around the world, but in different ways. And, and some people are comfortable with it. Some people aren't. So it's going to be a long time before you go back to just kind of a free reign and, and, and shooting films the way they used to be done. Even going to do a simple interview, uh, you have to be tested for COVID. Everybody has got to wear their masks. Many different ways to do these these interviews now. Definitely interesting times. And, you know, it's great for viewership, but it's also, it's, it's hard on, on the filmmakers to bring new content. Uh, something interesting about, you know, our show, our last two episodes had to be finished remotely. We needed to get it out there. We wanted to be first out there and, and we wanted to make sure that we did it right so even though it did take a little bit longer in the end you know we were midway through our third episode of edit you know when the pandemic hit so we in the end we did have to finish the the third and fourth episodes remotely so that was you know a first for everyone when you watched as a filmmaker directing the Jeffrey Epstein series, Prince Andrew in the BBC interview, the subsequent fallout that he had over the worst royal family interview on record, I'm curious to know how energizing that was for your cause because he had been denying that for some time. Well, it was really good timing on our part because we were in Australia with Virginia two days after that happened. So we had her immediate raw reaction to that. And she, you know, was very emotional and real about it and very disappointed and upset by it. And, you know, we were thrilled that, that we were able to get that into the series. If we had wrapped any sooner, uh, you know, of course, we reached out to Buckingham House trying to get our own interviews, which we knew would never happen. But you had to do all the right things in order to do it. And to see him, you know, as train wreck television at its, you know, best or worst, whichever way you want to look at it. In some ways, that was a, a filmmaker's dream to have that. That was crazy. Uh, and and then to have her reaction immediately on the heels of it was, you know, one of the brighter moments, I think, of the series. And that was really real and shocking, really. And, you know, Prince Andrew's downfall has been rapid and swift since then. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.